0: We start a new series today. You will notice, I was here at the church uh, pretty early this morning, and as I was, I always do, I just, I, I, I don't think you care about this, but I, I kind of do my sermon. When I leave the church Friday afternoon, I don't like last minute pressure, so I always like to feel like I'm, if the next morning was Sunday, I'm ready to go with my class, with Sunday morning, with Sunday night that's just the way I like to do it Saturday evening my routine is sometimes we'll go out for a little bit or something but usually my routine is I, I take my Sunday morning stuff and I just go over it all again and so every Saturday Rene sees me in that chair and I've got a pen and like you would with editing a manuscript I, I, I go over what I did that week and I go what were you thinking there and I scratch out that paragraph and I renumber this and I move that and I do it all again and then sunday morning when i get here i take it out and i look at it and i go what were you thinking there and i s- and so this morning I, I really redid this a lot and you will see in the middle of it i have a bit of a a bit of a diversion a bit of a sidebar to just something that i really felt i'm not trying to sound spooky but i really felt impressed that i wanted to cover and and i worked it into this message though you'll see it's not it, it's it's not a nice part of the message. You know what I mean? It doesn't flow perfectly. When you can't run away from your most troubling thoughts, this is part one. There'll be maybe 10 or 11 messages, and I'm plenty loud. You guys can probably pull me down a wee bit. When faith loses its focus, typically I do, uh, working through a book of the Bible Sunday morning, and then sometimes more topical like we are at night. I'm going to switch. The next Sunday night will be more textual, and I have a topic that we're covering now for the next nine or ten weeks. When faith loses its focus. Have you ever had the experience of meeting someone at the airport whom you've never seen before? And you have the assignment of going and meeting someone who's coming. It's your job to meet them. You know the flight number. You're there. And you just you stand there. And you try and smile at every person getting off the plane. Because you don't know the name. You don't have a sign. And so you look at everyone in the eye. Not long enough to appear to be a homicidal maniac. But long enough just so that they might see you're expecting someone and they may well be that person. And so you just try and meet briefly, but not too starkly, with the eyes of everyone getting off the plane. Now suppose I'm the one getting off the plane. Someone is supposed to be there to pick me up. But nobody has a sign, and nobody comes forward in any way. Suppose I'm just about to leave the airport. I'm giving up. I'm going to get a cab. Someone comes up and says, You mean to tell me you're Don Horbin? Yes, I am. No way, man. You aren't at all what I had pictured in my mind. I never dreamed you'd be so handsome. (laughs) Or maybe, I thought you'd be a lot taller. I thought you'd be younger. I knew your dad and your grandpa, and I thought you'd be speaking Ukrainian or something. Maybe I had a sack of pierogies with you when you got off the plane. Or I I heard you were a pastor and I thought I'd just look for somebody giving out four spiritual laws to people. You're not at all what I had pictured in my mind. Or, what if my contact person, my ride, had, had so fixed this false picture of my identity in his mind, that he wouldn't even believe that I was Don Horvath? What if he was so convinced that his mental picture of me was accurate, he wouldn't even bother picking me up? He wouldn't even bother taking me to my destination. What if he concluded, what if he concluded that No way, you're not Don Horbin. Don Horbin didn't even arrive that day at the airport. You are not Don Horbin because that's not what I was led to believe Don Horbin would be like. So no, you're not him. You're not he. The ideas, the pictures we make of anybody... ...has a great deal to do with our reception of that person. Has a great deal to do with our accurate understanding of that person. Our picture of anyone has a great deal to do with our expectations of that person. And our picture of any person has a great deal to do with the kind of or the quality of relationship we're going to have with that person. We, We can see the truth of those words if you just think this through a little bit. Suppose I think a person is absolutely honest, absolutely trustworthy, absolutely safe to babysit my children, but he's really a maniac a crook, maybe a child molester, a criminal. But I'm convinced my picture of that person is they're, they're good, they're moral, they're safe, they're trustworthy, they're upright. Or suppose you are a wonderfully honest, caring person, but I think you're a hard-nosed crook. I will never put the confidence in you that you deserve. I will never receive the benefits of the rich friendship, the kind of help, maybe the kind of advice, maybe the kind of financial advice or business advice that I might profit from, but I won't listen to you even though you're nothing but kind, helpful, good, because I have a picture in my mind that you are not to be trusted. It will affect my relationship. This is a series of teachings on the kind of dark thoughts, the kinds of doubts I want to talk about. I have a lot of conversations with wonderful, good Christian people who who find, uh, find themselves going through seasons where they wonder about the kind of thoughts. I don't mean impure, immoral thoughts. I mean, I mean troubling thoughts of, gee, I wonder is this all true? And sometimes they can't shake them. Dark. Spiritually dark in that sense. Troubling thoughts. Now we usually think just of, of intellectual doubts. Doubts that arise because of some kind of lack of evidence for faith. We'll consider some in those series. We deal with that ...thoroughly, very well in this church. The kind of doubts we normally picture... ...are the kind of doubts, say, say that, uh, that Tim Barnett... ...Paul Franks, Rich Davis... ...those guys deal with those things brilliantly. If you haven't been coming on Wednesday nights... ...if you miss it, you miss it. You know that... that. ...but I think... ...a lot of the doubts we experience... aren't coming from intellectual sources. My guess is it might not even be the most common source of doubt. Many of our doubts about God, about the Christian life, they come from exactly the same kind of problem that I described in that silly opening story. For some reason or another, believers get into their heads some kind of wrong concept of God so wrong that it actually comes between the kind of relationship they should have with God and the kind that they actually do their their picture of God actually hinders their faith in God so then here's what happens next since they don't know they're developing a false picture of God, they blame God or the Christian faith or the church. But they put the blame on that end of the stick because they don't know they're developing a false picture of God. They blame God rather than their faulty picture. Little realizing that God isn't like what they think he is like at all. And because they don't understand God as he is, they can't trust him as they should. That's an important sentence. Because they don't understand God as he really is, they can't trust him as they really should. There are some Uh, ...critically important points for us to remember... ...regarding the kind of thoughts, the dark thoughts, the doubts... ...the questions that arise from faith that is out of focus. I chose out of focus. Not faith that isn't based on what God is actually like. Faith that has a false picture, like that person at the airport. And if we don't remember some of these points... We won't know how to fight those kind of doubts when they arise. And they will arise. They will come to everyone. See, it doesn't matter what you believe, you will have doubts about it. Doubts are a part of the human condition. C.S. Lewis said that uh, someone asked him about doubts. As a Christian, did he ever have doubts? He said, yes. He said, but... I had the advantage because there were times when I was an atheist and God seemed terribly real to me. Pick any camp you want. Being that we are human beings with fallen minds and limited understandings, you can't pick any camp without going through seasons where, where doubts come. So I have a couple of thoughts I want to leave and a little diversion, like I said, in the middle. Point number one. Doubt is not always the same as unbelief. That's important to remember. Because there is an enemy who will come at any thought of doubt... ...and make you feel like you are a lousy Christian. Shame on you. Like all of a sudden he cares about how spiritual you are. Doubt is not always the same as unbelief. If, if a person has a faulty picture of God he or she will, sooner or later, be plagued by this sense of the unreality of the God he is trying to worship. But the problem isn't unbelief. The person does believe in God. The problem isn't a lack of belief. The problem is rather believing the wrong things. Too much belief, if you will, but in a wrong direction. That's the problem. In other words, sincerity won't guarantee sturdy faith. Inaccurate beliefs won't hold up a genuine faith. Uh, The real problem with faith out of focus, it needs to be clearly understood. It isn't, it isn't what it feels like. It isn't a problem of doubting genuine beliefs. That Jesus really rose from the dead. That Jesus is coming again, that he died on the cross for our sins. The real problem isn't a doubting of genuine beliefs, the real problem is a faulty picture of of God. It isn't doubting genuine truths, but believing false ones. It's, It's building your faith on inaccurate assumptions that won't hold the weight of biblical examination. Let me try and say that in a better way. The problem isn't that the person at the airport didn't show up. The problem isn't that he wasn't really there and he wasn't really a real person. He was. The problem is I wasn't expecting the right person because I held false assumptions about who was coming. Okay? There was no lack of evidence. There was no lack of reality. It was my mental picture that was creating the doubt. So that leads to the second point I want to talk about. How false pictures of God develop. I know we don't develop pictures anymore, but it seemed to kind of work. There are two ways in which false Pictures of God get established in our minds. Two ways. First, we can hold on to pre-conversion ways of thinking about God after we have come to Christ. I think this is a huge problem. Let me try and explain it. So, instead of, right at the moment of conversion, instead of rooting out pre-conversion, pre-Christian concepts and worldviews, we actually quietly leave those big worldview concepts, we leave them undisturbed while we make dramatic changes in our outward actions. So, So, we get saved... And, and uh, I, we, we stop swearing, I stop cheating on my wife, I stop getting drunk, I, I stop uh, whatever it might be. I stop looking at pornography on the Internet. I try and stop lying. I'd go to church. Pastor Don says, "I're supposed to go to church. I'll even try Sunday night once in a while. Um, I'd get a Bible reading program. I start reading my Bible, and so I've got these things. I stop doing these things and I start doing these things. But they're all those outward activities. Okay? And they're good. This is not me saying those things aren't important. I'm saying you can make wholesale changes in a lot of the actions of your life and never touch some of the basic presuppositions, worldviews. And you leave those things undisturbed until they quietly begin to mingle with your Christian conversion. And because of the uh, attention given to these outward changes of behavior, good things, attention is diverted away from areas where inward thoughts, values, ambitions, affections, ideas, those things are untouched, by revelation of divine truth. I get that those things don't all change overnight. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about a focus on certain outward activities that never ever reaches inward ideas and attitudes. I said I think this problem is becoming increasingly common in the church. Consider this. People come to faith for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes they come to Jesus because some preacher told them that they will find a solution to their particular need. It's very common. Your marriage is falling apart, you need Jesus. You went bankrupt, you you need Jesus. You're lonely, you need Jesus. You feel unfulfilled. You need Jesus. You're a teenager. Far from the Lord. You need Jesus. You need to give this situation to God. I'm lonely. Jesus will be the companion. The problem problem isn't that those things are untrue. The real problem is different. The problem is none of those reasons will be big enough To replace wrong concepts of God with bigger ones and correct ones. These people who come for these reasons, they may very well be incredibly sincere, but they're looking for something other than just genuine conversion to Christ. They're looking for a solution to a desperate problem. And Jesus has been thrown out to them as, well, here's your answer. Let me give you genuine motives for coming to Christ, all right? If you've never heard it before, you're not a Christian. You do need to be a Christian, but not for the reasons you think. Here's why you need to come to Christ today. A, you are eternally lost and separated from a holy God, and you can do nothing to remedy this situation by yourself. This is true whether your marriage is falling apart or whether your marriage is better than mine. This is true whether you're unemployed or whether you have a million dollars in the bank. If your lostness isn't your primary motive in coming to Christ, you will be starting out your Christian walk on the wrong foot. And you can't help but build an inaccurate picture of God through Christ being your redeemer. Rather than your therapist. Here's another genuine motive. Here's why you need to come to Jesus. Your motive for doing anything that you do in life... ...will be glorifying Jesus and building his kingdom. This will be my thinking behind every resistance of sin. I'm not just trying to be a better person... This is the thinking behind every resistance of sin and wickedness. If my primary concern is the opinion and the approval of my friends, I may, just by luck, make some quality decisions if they happen to be good examples. But there will be nothing distinctly Christian in my choices, and thus I choose to do everything I do to glorify Christ and to build his kingdom. Three... Here's your third reason why you need to come to Christ. Your understanding of moral and spiritual truth... is objective and absolute... rather than personal and subjective. So for the Christian, there's no such thing as... as a moral principle being true for you or true for me. Relativism is, at its core anti-Christian, and will destroy any concept of genuine Christian faith. I could talk more about that, I just I can't. D. There's a fourth reason you need to come to Christ. Your relationship with self should be one of self-denial rather than self-fulfillment. It It is right at the point of conversion, not some later point of discipleship. It is right at the moment where Jesus saw people choosing to follow him before they made the decision. He would say to them, if you want to follow me, if you're even considering following me, you must first of all take up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow me. That is not some later process of sanctification. It is the first step. Everyone who follows Jesus has to make that decision. So, if those concepts and those motives, I listed four, if they aren't in place, I will think I have made a decision to follow Christ, but I'm not meeting the right person at the airport, okay? And I'm going to be confused about why things aren't working the way they should be. But the problem isn't, That Jesus isn't real and Christianity doesn't work. The problem is... I never understood the terms when I signed up... And I never made the kind of mental adjustment... That following Jesus requires. Those are the concepts... And motives... That need to replace... Everything else about the way I think. Before any actions whatsoever take place. They need to replace... Everything about the way I think when I come to Christ for new birth. If any of those steps is omitted or sidestepped, then genuine faith will become an impossibility sooner or later. It might not be immediate, but sooner or later. If wrong presuppositions about how God acts, what God requires, if those are allowed to remain intact when faith is first embraced, those wrong concepts will incubate and proliferate like a foreign bacteria in your bloodstream. And the professing Christian will end up not so much with a renewed mind as a patched up mind. And doubts will always hound that kind of conversion. Always. But again, I just want to say the problem wasn't that genuine faith was out of reach. Or that it didn't make sense. The problem was this seeker wasn't looking for the same God as the one who has revealed himself in the Word and in Jesus Christ. So this person, when troubled by doubts, isn't doubting genuine faith. He's never tried genuine faith, though he thinks he has. Do you understand what I'm saying? Hello? Okay. Let me just read one scripture. There's, there's this... Biblical picture in the Old Testament... Which Paul says... These things were written about beforehand... So that we could apply them... Upon whom the end of time has come. Us. That these things apply. Novembers... Novembers, yeah. Numbers... thirty-three fifty-five. 55 If you've got a Bible with Novembers in it... You've got another problem entirely. I can... But it did expose... Because I could just see some of you... Novembers, is Novembers, is Novembers. <laughs> you need a Bible reading program. Numbers thirty-three, fifty-five. Here are these instructions... As they go into the land. But if you do not drive out... The inhabitants of the land... From before you... Then those of them... Whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes. You ever get a fish hook in your eye? Yeah, it's quite a picture, isn't it? Sorry. Uh, They shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you. Do you hear that? They shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. You can do it. this just ongoing trouble. That's what you're inviting. Short term, it's easier not to drive them out. Correct? Way easier. Long term, it's going to be terrible not to drive them out. I think in short term, long term. Now, the reason those historic details in the year 9 BC, the reason they're recorded for Christians in 2016 is they picture the process of of establishing patterns of new life, of how a renewed mind is formed. Any old thought patterns, presuppositions from the pre-Christian state of mind that aren't sort of plucked out, identified, renounced, right at the point of conversion, will only creep up and deceive and tear down and destroy the possibility of genuine faith taking root in that life. So... We've been looking at how these false pictures, like the guy at the airport. You're not Don Horvath. Are you kidding? This is not what I was expecting. How that kind of false understanding of a real person develops. And the point we've just been looking at is things aren't dealt with thoroughly at conversion. Okay? Just so we all understand that's where we're at. There's another way that those false pictures develop. Second... The Christian mind and genuine faith can become corrupted by the entrance of unchristian presuppositions after coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not talking now at the point of conversion. I'm talking after. Primarily, that happens through three things. The media, all forms of media. Materialism, which leads to idolatry and unexamined friendships. There. I've just told you how minds get led astray. It's only three things. The media, the idols we worship in the media, the ridiculous, mindless idols we worship in the media, materialism, and the threat of idolatry that is attached to it, and Our friends. Unexamined friendships. These three things exert pressure on our minds in two specific areas. First. And this is where I said, you're going to have to do a comma and a little sidebar. Do you remember? Okay. First, the pressure to embrace... Tolerance, the pressure. Think of, think of, of, uh, you know, a pipe that's about to burst with water, or I mean, real pressure. There's something pushing all the time. All right, the pressure to embrace tolerance over biblical revelation. And here's the little aside. This creates a huge. Problem ...for Christian purity. The media doesn't function with any moral absolutes... ...that are capable of overriding... ...mere social acceptability. So if the majority feels something is right... ...it becomes right. You see, it's not just... It's not just that Christians are governed by different rules. That misses the point entirely. The Christian's standards move along an entirely different plane altogether than social responsibility. I've never heard what I'm about to say. I've never heard it dealt with in any teaching that I'm aware of. I don't remember reading this in any Christian book. This is what happened in my office this morning as I was thinking about this. Let me give you a test. You don't have to answer out loud, but just mentally. Try to imagine... a wicked act... being described... on any news outlet or talk show that doesn't involve a wicked act that doesn't involve either violence ill will treatment of others violence slash ill will toward other people or intolerance to someone else's rights so so try to try to imagine some wicked action being described in the media, but remove social injustice or intolerance. Can you think of, in the media I'm talking, any wicked acts apart from these? So this would include everything like wars, terrorism, ill-treatment, violence, uh, the trampling of rights the rights of others, so economic injustice to third world countries, bad trade laws because it deprives the poor. Take out social injustice and take out intolerance. And I would submit to you, you might be able to, but you have to look long and hard to find anything else that is viewed as wicked. Then something else is happening at the same time. Because that's the case, Christians are getting increasingly bad press for focusing on their pet sins. I've heard that phrase. Their pet sins. Homosexuality, transgenderism, common law relationships. There's a, there's a whack of them. I'm just, I don't mean those are the only three. I'm just illustrating. And Christians are actually starting to feel guilty about talking about these things because they're considered kind of fundamentalist, kind of redneck. After all the cry goes out against us, what harm is the gay couple doing to you? You might not feel you want to be in a gay marriage, but we're not forcing you to be in a gay marriage. How is the couple down the street in a gay marriage? How is that hurting you? Right? What right do you have to enforce your view of marriage on someone else? And of course, well, they're not hurting me, technically. And if somebody famous is is, uh, a man and wants to be a woman, I might not like it. But it's not hurting me, right? How is it hurting me? It's his life. What right do we have at Cedarview Community Church to impose our view on what somebody else does as long as it's not hurting us? How is it hurting you if loving couples live together without the covenant of marriage? In fact, more and more Christians do that kind of thing. And then comes the clincher. There are more serious wrongs to deal with in this world than your archaic views of sex and marriage. There's war, there's bullying, there's economic injustice of the wealthy against the poor. And those words immediately have their intended effect. They they make us feel petty, small-minded, limited in scope, parochial. They make us feel we really aren't global Christians with our narrow focus. And I want to argue something different. This is just with me. I want to argue as strongly as I can that this isn't a fair argument at all. I want to argue that Christians aren't being small-minded when they talk about their, quotes, petty sins. Let me say this. I actually think Christians do talk about some sins more than others. And I want to try and tell you why I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. It's not because they are uncaring or uninformed about other issues. Their reason is more noble than that. And I wish it were shouted more often... Christians speak so much about certain personal sins because only those sins, those sins now totally accepted socially, those sins now carrying the added stamp of approval by secular legalization, only those sins are definable as sins solely by divine revelation plus nothing. In other words, you don't have to convince very many people, not yet, that molesting a small child is a bad thing. There are sins of injustice that that carry the weight of their own wickedness with them in more obvious fashion. But when you start talking about these particular sins that Christians so often talk about that are legal and acceptable on a broad scale, Christians have a unique opportunity to say, here's what defines sin. Not social acceptability or unacceptability, but solely the decree of God. There is no longer any other reason for our world to reject these personal sins other than the say-so of God. And smart Christians know they have the best chance of defining what makes sin, sin with those kinds of activities that don't appear wicked any longer in the eyes of our world. What makes them wicked? Well, God says... Now, remember where we are. I was saying that a doubting mind can arise by genuine faith being corrupted by a secular mindset after conversion. And then I said that can happen in two ways. The first, which we've just considered, is the acceptance of tolerance over biblical revelation. Now, to the second. The pressure to conform to a world that Jesus Christ consistently calls his disciples to renounce and remain separated from in the most absolute sense of the word. So the first, I'm talking about the mental concepts. Now I'm talking about patterns of behavior and actions that we can easily adopt simply because everybody else around us is doing so. I know those are related, but they're slightly different. This, this world in which we live is a very jealous God. It's not only the God of the Bible that's jealous. This world calls us to worship its styles and fashions. It calls us to dance to its music, and I mean that figuratively, all right? To love its stars and celebrities with an absolute devotion... Athletes, same thing. To live for its dreams and goals of success and pleasure. And its success in seducing Christians lies in its ability to make all of its concessions seem small and of little eternal consequence. Okay, In that that way, those being deceived can mock those who try to warn them. That they're merely being petty and legalistic, like God's going to send me for hell to hell just for sleeping with one woman before I'm married. Does God do that? Can he do that? Would he be just to do that? And nobody even wants to think about the answer to that question. And so, little by little, the professing Christian ends up with a kind of a mix-and-match kind of faith. Church, Bible reading, teach a class, sing in a choir. And a kind of lifeless, joyless blend of some kind of Christian religion held in the mind, but with no real understanding of how to make it work powerfully in life. doubt, in that kind of never-never land, doubt and emptiness are just certain to emerge and thrive and swallow up whatever remains of faith. Remember this. Remember where you heard it. When you try to live in two worlds, you find the best of neither and the worst of each. When you try and live in two worlds, you find the best of neither and the worst of each. Last point. So what is the answer to faith out of focus? So whatever the cause, what can be done once faith becomes a hybrid of biblical Christianity and worldly thinking? What can be done with this kind of sterile, mule-like Christianity? Let me go over a couple of things. A. For people who never made a deep enough start when they made their own profession of faith, there will come at some point the most difficult decision of all. Sooner or later, they will come to the point of either quitting altogether because they find the faith they possess not adequate to deal with the problems and questions they have, or you've got to go back to square one and make a proper start of seriously following the real Christ for the right reasons. I said it's a hard decision because that takes incredible humility. It's almost easier for the absolute, abject pagan to come one time to Christ Than for someone who, for all appearances, has been brought up in a Christian home and kind of waddled through all sorts of little segments of Christianity, it's a very difficult, humbling thing for that person to stop and say, this, enough, enough. I'm either in with both feet or not in at all. There are people in this room, and you need to rethink that. There are young people who are tag-alongs to their parents' faith. Some wouldn't even come to church if they didn't have to. There are young adults who, in an effort to boast of a more sophisticated faith than the previous generation of old-timers, have become so worldly-minded that the only hope is to abandon whatever mixture of worldliness and watered-down Christianity they possess and come to Jesus for the real thing. There are husbands and fathers who are honestly far more enamored with worldly success and power than Jesus, but who want their kids to grow up to follow Jesus. All these religious people need the same thing. Genuine, transforming, God-saturated to the roots, conversion and new birth. Many won't have the courage to do that. I, pray that. I pray that some will. And Secondly, for people who are honestly trying every day to follow Jesus with a pure, sincere heart, the long-term need, the long-term need is to keep training the mind and heart to close the door to any habit or lifestyle that brings false presuppositions into a new, renewed mind. Yeah, We have a little... We are all, me too, far too careless about the way we train our minds. I said a couple weeks ago, most Christians spend more money and time training their dogs than training their minds. We have a little um, carbon monoxide. Is that the deadly gas that you don't smell, the one that... You can see I'm up on this. And we have this little thing. You plug it into an outlet. And uh, and there's a little button on it for testing. And when it goes, this thing just... it, It just slices you in half, the sound. And my little grandson, Jack, has found that little button... And it's ear splitting. So because, because I mean the design is that there's there's something that can be dangerous to you but you're not going to be aware of until you hear that piercing scream. And so that's how it works. The carbon monoxide isn't noticeable under normal circumstances. You don't think about it. The only thing that would make you think about it would be some kind of reminder that it's present. Now, here's my thing. What would happen in your house? What would happen in your house? There you are with Netflix. What would happen if every time something displeasing to Christ came on the screen? You aren't thinking about it. You got your, your, your Diet Coke and your popcorn and you're just sitting there. What would happen if every time something that came on the screen was displeasing to Christ and you were just sitting there and all of a sudden beep! there's a swear word beep! there's this lovely romantic couple waltzing through the grass and falling under a tree and rolling around beep! how often would that go off in our homes do you think do you see what I'm saying how often would that go off at your house? So, so we need to establish certain ways that we're, that we're going to become careful. What about every time, every time I develop an affection for something that is just inordinate... A material object, uh, a thing to have, uh, and it was just way more than I ever would need. What would happen? Beep! If every time I was a bad example, beep! You get my point, we would all be deaf, wouldn't we? We would all be deaf. For people who are honestly trying to follow Jesus with a pure, sincere heart, the long-term need is to keep training the heart to close the door on habits of lifestyle that bring false presuppositions into the mind. Lower the standards of acceptance. Lower the bar for purity. Weaken devotion to Christ change the way we think about the holiness of God. When we were kids, I don't know why it was, but I can remember when we lived in Prince George, B.C., there was a dentist in the church who was a Christian. And I don't think my folks had any money for a dentist. And all four of us, four Horban boys, would mom would take us to the dentist at the same time. And even back then, we would sit in the waiting room and they would have... Magazines, and there would be a picture on the front of some beautiful model onto which we would black out teeth with a pen and, and put a mustache and warts and thought it was hilariously funny. Very witty, very clever. And here's what happens. Here's what happens in the kind of world we live in. And this part isn't funny. This is exactly... In a million ways an hour. This is exactly what this world wants to do with your picture of God. Your picture of God. That's what this world wants to do. Your understanding of God. What he's like. What he values. God gets painted as everything from a tolerant old man who just wants everyone to love each other and have a gay old time or have a good time. I guess that's changed. To some kind of cruel sadist who finds people who have failed and he grinds them into powder. And my plea to you is never let anybody, not your church, not your pastor, not your teacher, not any book, not any film, and above all, not some silly media celebrity feed you wrong information about God and what you should worship. Because the picture that gets painted in your mind is the God you will in fact try to find at the airport and not recognize. And there's nothing easier to create yet harder to trust than a false image of what God is like. So I just kind of hope mentally... You'll just be sitting in your house, and all week long, you're just going to think, Beep, and you'll just hear. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it is life, the issues of life. And we hear this truth in Jesus' name, right, church? Let's pray.